to Christ alone. I hope that that is uh, the encouragement that you walk away with this morning. Already and after the sermon, as we look at the blessing of Jesus Christ, the promise of God through the line of Shem this morning. You can open with me to Genesis chapter 9. Last week, uh, we completed our study of Noah um, and the ark particularly. He disembarked from the ark and worshiped God for his gracious deliverance. We heard last week of God's covenant of mercy to humanity, and we observed him hang his bow in the cloud as a sign right, of that peaceful promise. In the verses that follow, Moses kind of shapes four sections that move us from the life of Noah, the Toledot of Noah, into consideration of the next major character in the story, and that is Abram. So the first of those four sections we'll be looking at this morning, and it, it relays this sort of final and bizarre account from Noah's life, and we'll be reading that in a moment. Um, the first two verses of it in chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, say, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. So you can kind of see uh, that Noah is making this tur- or that Moses is making this turn from attention specifically to Noah to his sons. You remember, all of humanity, save eight people, were just destroyed from the face of the earth. And God had just told these eight survivors, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So who's going to be doing that? Well, Noah's sons are going to be doing that. These three and their wives. So the most significant element of this first section that we're going to be reading and looking at this morning is uh, this invocation of Noah on his sons following this sort of bizarre situation that happens. The most significant element this morning is the blessing and the cursing that Noah invokes upon his sons. And what that does is it sets the stage for us to understand section number two. Section two, which begins in chapter 10, is a genealogy that traces all three branches of Noah's family through Japheth first, and then Ham, and then Shem. And the blessing and cursing that was just extended in the text that we're going to read this morning, that becomes the theme of chapter 10. It's far more, the blessing and cursing goes far beyond just his sons, but these sons are the father fathers of all the generations that follow and the generations that follow are characterized by the virtue and vices of their fathers what happens in chapter 10 as well is that everybody's spreading out these families spread across the land and they're divided by families and by nations and by language so this spread by languages is Uh, that only makes sense when we continue reading. And that leads us to the third major section, and that is the Tower of Babel, which is 
uh, kind of another mysterious account. It's, it's this city and this tower that the new humanity after the flood attempts to build. And, and they make a name for themselves so that they can actually avoid being scattered. But in chapter 10, they were all scattered. So the beginning of chapter 11 makes sense of the genealogies that are spread by language. And that leads us then to the fourth section, which we're also going to read and address today. So we're sort of doing bookends, the first and the fourth sections. And the fourth section repeats the genealogy of Shem. That's beginning in chapter 11, verse 10. This time, emphasizing the move to Abraham from Noah. And it's this move to Abraham where Moses really develops the reality of God's blessing on humanity that we just, that we're going to see in our text this morning. So these four sections all together, uh, they kind of encourage us to discover anew uh, God's ability to transform the dark and the shameful moments of humanity into what becomes a very bright beacon of hope for future generations by means of his blessing. In this case, found in the words of Noah to Shem, who ends up being the father of the fathers, father of the patriarchs. So let's pray, and then we will read uh, the remainder of our section in chapter 9. Father, we approach you this morning um, knowing that this is your word. These are not my words or the words of this church. They are yours, and we thank you for them. We pray that this morning there would be a great measure of clarity concerning not only what is happening, but why it's happening as we move to consider your blessing on Shem, ultimately that the Messiah will come through him. And that gives us great hope this morning. So we pray that as we look here, that your spirit would be active in the hearts of your people that he would stir our minds and our affections, that we would know and respond to your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read Genesis 9, beginning again in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, then went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So when Noah steps off the ark, 
things are looking pretty bright, aren't they? It's a dark world, but there's hope. There's eight of these human beings remaining, and so he sacrifices, he worships, and and God covenants, and everything seems like it's going well, but this post-Diluvian family follows the pattern quite quickly of the first, the pre-Diluvian family. Last week, Pastor Matt demonstrated uh, a lot of the parallels between Adam and Noah, and one of these parallel points is that both men ended up being felled by fruit, wasn't it? So this story, this sort of deflating story, tells of Noah, the spiritual giant, the righteous man who comes off of the ark, who worships, and he's reduced to a drunken fool. Now there's uh, literally what's happening. Here's our outline this morning. We have the, the introduction, the transition into the story of Noah and his sons particularly. And then there are two circuits, the incident that happens and then the invocation. Two circuits that Moses follows. He first addresses Noah. In the incident, he gets drunk and is uncovered in his tent. Then he addresses Ham and what Ham does and, and then what Shem and Japheth do. Then that same circuit repeats in the second half where we have Noah awakening. He addresses Ham first and his son Canaan. And then he addresses the other two boys, Shem and Japheth. So that's just the style that Moses is using this morning. Shocking that it's not a chiasm, I know, but this is another way that uh, the Hebrews communicate is on circuits, and so they'll just repeat something, but with uh, different details in the second half. And so the first circuit is probably what causes the most questions, isn't it? What's going on in this story? What's Noah doing? What's Ham doing? What are Shem and Japheth doing? And, and why is this occurring? But the first circuit isn't really the theological point of the narrative this morning. It exists to make sense of the second half. Because if we just have Noah waking up one morning and saying, Ham, you're cursed, Shem, you're blessed, then that's confusing. But with this story, this first circuit behind the cursing and blessing, then we can move forward with understanding. So as we begin, let's look 2021, Noah's impropriety. Story sort of sets up by describing Noah as a farmer, right? And a vineyard dresser. He was a man of the soil, which takes us immediately back to the responsibility of Adam and to the responsibilities that Cain took up after him. They were toilers of the soil. But as the first man in the new world, the parallel to Adam, this phrase probably carries some weight as a title too. No, I mean, Noah is the Lord of the ground. He's the, the king of the new earth, the master of this earth. And we discover here the first mention of wine in the Pentateuch. There's a possibility that Noah is the innovator of wine. That's certainly not demanded by the text, but since it's the first time, that's a possibility, which some people would use to sort of allow for a measure of innocence in the situation. Maybe he's like learning, oh, that's what wine does. Okay. So but that doesn't seem to seem to be the point here. Uh, I don't think we need to make Noah out to be innocent. I think I tend to think probably that Noah's just continuing the tradition handed down to him as a cultivator. And I think for a few reasons we don't need to make Noah out to be innocent. One, Noah's culpability is irrelevant in the story. There's no dark blame assigned to him for what he's done. And second, 
Sometimes it's good, I think, for us to see righteous people sin. It's a good reminder to us. We would, we would do well not to pretend that they don't. Our confidence is not built on the righteousness of Noah or anyone else, but on the blamelessness of Christ and none other. And ultimately, so is Noah's. Noah's hope, his confidence, his righteousness is not based on his own. And so this shameful event uh, doesn't undo God's perspective of the righteous man. The text does probably prompt a, a brief conversation anyways about wine uh, and other intoxicating drinks. Throughout scripture, this topic is approached normally from a wisdom perspective. You may or may not be at all surprised to hear that God's word commends wine as a good gift, something that comes from God. And it's said positively to gladden the heart of man. It's, it's said to bless people with, with warmth and with comfort. We use it to celebrate things and to memorialize other things. To a degree, it also cleanses and heals. From a prophetic perspective, later on in this Old Testament, uh, and carried on into the New Testament, wine symbolizes the bliss and the abundance of the Messianic age. It's even tied in relationship to Jesus himself. And so it's a good thing. Yet, <laughs> we see in chapter 9, and we know ourselves that this gift can be a very sharp, double-edged blade. There's explicit warnings throughout this Old Testament uh, to certain religious leaders and civil leaders, great caution, uh, even great caution to the general populace, Explicit commands, don't be drunk with wine wherein there is excess, but instead, this New Testament be filled with the Spirit. So we know that too much of this good gift quickly turns its blessings into curses. It turns the warmth into a raging forest fire. Comfort to deep forgetfulness. Celebration to debauchery. Communal festivals to this isolated spiraling I think we've seen the devastating and slavish effects of not only individuals, but also a nation that indulges, goes beyond intent. And we see the result here as well, that Noah's interaction with his wine uh, is plain and it's degrading. He got drunk and he lost his modesty. It's not a good thing. So this debacle sort of prompts a response as well from his family when they see this. As we read the account, it may appear... If you look at verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, he saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. And then following that, when Noah wakes up, he says, cursed be Canaan, a son of ser a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Isn't Ham's punishment a little bit greater than his crime? Uh, that, that sense where it's like he just saw him and he told his brothers and now he's like his whole line is cursed. So that immediate like knee-jerk reaction away from the seriousness of the curse has caused people to sort of sit down and ponder if there's more here than meets the eye. And so there's been many suggestions about what Ham actually did. Some uh, perhaps reasonable and some quite ludicrous. Some uh, because of the words for uncovering and nakedness and the way those are used previously and afterward in the Old Testament. Uh, it, indicate that Ham may have committed a sexual sin here. 
perhaps homosexual act with his father or a heterosexual act with his father's wife while his father lay there uh, inebriated. Some would argue that this text then loses some of its details and some of its color uh, because it's been redacted for the sake of this righteous man's decency. Right? We're going to take some of these gory details out. But a plain reading of the text, and we're not going to go too far down, uh, there's, there's many of those, but a plain reading of the text, I believe, suggests that, one, Noah uncovered himself in his drunkenness, not Ham. And the two things that it explicitly says that Ham does are he saw, he observed Noah's nakedness, and then he marches out of the tent and he tells his brothers. So Ham is not creating Noah's nakedness. The problem, initially, it is a problem that he saw it. It's shameful. It's, um, we'll get into that in, in a moment here. But it's not just that he saw. That, that could have been bad enough. But I don't think he would have received the curse had all he done been seeing his father's nakedness. It's that he tells his brothers what's just happened. And then finally, I think Shem and Japheth, their actions stand in direct contrast to Ham's. So if, if the fact that they cover their father undoes what, what Ham has done, then it seems that, that, that Ham's sin was simple. There's not something hidden behind the text here. I believe that a lot of those suggestions of sort of additional impropriety are sensational, they're provocative, and they're sort of seeking to find something in the text that's not there. And in so doing, they're actually missing the point that's being made concerning what Ham did. That Ham dishonored his father. And that's very serious. He saw his father in a compromised situation and he took advantage of it. When Ham glanced in the tent, right, and he sees, he understands the scenario. He looks at his foolish father there on the ground. He should have quickly grabbed his father's garment and covered him. And instead, the sort of sense from the text that you get is that he sort of mocks him. He snickers like, oh, dad. And he may, perhaps even picks up his dad's garment that's laying there. And he takes it to show his brothers. And he's like, you should see dad, stupid old man, you know, getting drunk on his own grapes. And he's lying there naked. Here's his garment. Look at this. I don't think we really need reminded that nakedness publicized is shameful. It's intuitive to us. It's exposing and it's, it's vulnerable to see someone without covering gives you an advantage over that person. And you can either dismiss it and help them recover or you can exploit it. So just imagine with me, you find your own father, perhaps in a vulnerable and shameful situation. Let's say, I mean, some of you do, some of you don't. You have, let's say your father is a righteous man. He's a good man. You'd never expect to see this. Someone with dignity. Someone with strength. And he's just brought to this all-time low. And you see him in this scenario. You're the one, right, that walks into the tent during this moment of weakness. Your dad maybe singing this drunk karaoke and starting to take his clothes off as he dances stupidly in front of a crowd. And as a child, you have a few options, don't you? The option that Ham takes is to get out his phone 
and to begin live streaming his dad's activities. He thinks it's funny. Later, he posts, you know, this viral video of his stupid dad with the caption, you know, what an idiot. Just look at this guy. And he offers his father no way out of the shame. Instead, he amplifies it. He turns the volume up and he mocks it and he shares it. Ham is greatly dishonored, his father. And there's an important message here for us by way of application even now. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with promise. This is a part of the ten. This is a part of God's essential communication of how we should relate to each other if we're going to do what he has called us to do. There's even the death penalty that can be associated in the Old Testament with this great dishonor of your father. So I think there's a caution here for all of us that this is something that's important to the way that a Christian ought to live their lives. Young people, you may see your parents do some things you disagree with. You may think them to be, you know, old-fashioned or doing things they ought not do or giving you silly advice or whatever it may be, but I would urge you to, to take a moment of caution by observing Ham. Say, okay, but I would prefer to take the road of honor. Whether I agree with my father or I disagree with him, I'll choose to honor him. Then by way of stark contrast in verse 23, as soon as Shem and Japheth hear this just probably ridiculing, mocking from him, they say, what are you doing? Give me that. You know, and they perhaps even take this garment. There's a, uh, when it says that Shem and Japheth took a garment, there's a possibility that it is Noah's actual garment because it is, um, there's an article before the word. It's the garment. Now, it could just be the garment that they ended up taking. Or maybe that Moses is giving us a little clue that, you know, Ham picked it up to sort of laugh at his dad. And now they snatch it from him and they're going to go. And you just look at what they do. They, they take the garment. They put it on their shoulders. And they go backwards. And their faces are turned away. They're covering. They're making sure everything's the exact opposite of what Ham did. And in so doing, they're doing the opposite of what Ham did. They are honoring their father. They're helping him recover from a shameful scenario. The text slows down and goes at pretty great lengths in that verse to describe their intentionality toward doing that. The backward, the over the shoulder, the the eyes averted. So they are the equal opposite of Ham in the scenario. The second circuit then is Noah's invocation. So Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what the younger son had done to him. Knew could signify that it was intuitive to him. And that's been the cause of some of this earlier, I think, silly suggestions. But it also can mean that he found out that somebody told him. That's probably what happened here. And when he finds out about the arrogance and dishonor of Ham, that it can't be dismissed. It needs to be acknowledged. And so what he does is he opens his mouth, and for the first time, we hear from the mouth of a human being, curse. And he levels this against his own son, cursed be Canaan. Now, the text has already gone to great lengths also to describe the relationship between Canaan and Ham. All right, Ham, in verse 18, is the father of Canaan. Ham in verse 22 is the father of Canaan. And I believe there's one other time. There may not be. I might be missing it in this moment. But 
there's, there's a few times that, that he explicitly describes Ham as the father of Canaan. So when, so when Noah levels this curse, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. What's happening is, this is uh, it's important that it's on the lips of the patriarch rather than God's lips. Now, he could have sort of received this oracle from God, and this is like a, a prophetic word from God's mouth. It doesn't say that. Oftentimes, a prophet will say, thus says the Lord, as an oracle. And we know that a blessing or a curse is only as strong as the one that's giving it. So I think perhaps a a better way is invocation. This seems to be Noah's response as the patriarch of the family, knowing his sons and their characters. He gives almost um, like the psalmist might do, like an imprecation against Cain or against Canaan. And he also gives these words of blessing actually toward the Lord in relationship with Shem and with Japheth. So the curse and blessing seems to be the sort of prophetic prayer, a poetic invocation that, that God ends up fulfilling, foreshadows the relationships of the nations that we're going to see next week in chapter 10, uh, and the relationship of the three boys to each other. So what does he say? Curse be Cain, and a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. All three of these communications to his son are all parallel. There's three lines for each of them. The first one, cursing Canaan, the, the result, a servant of servants. So he's saying ultimate servitude, sort of like holy of holies or lord of lords, king of kings. That's the way that the Hebrew is using the servant of servants, the lowest of the low. That's who you will be to these two brothers. It does raise the question, while the relationship's already been connected to us, that, that Canaan is Ham's son, why Canaan? Why not Ham? Shouldn't that say, cursed be Ham? And there are moments in the Pentateuch when the sins of the father are visited on the son, on the next generation. But overwhelmingly, kind of the the fairness of the law would point to each person being responsible for their activity, each person bearing the weight of their own sin. You don't punish a child for the sins of their parent. I think instead what's happening here is is this twofold emphasis. One is the relationship between Cain, or I keep saying Cain, Cain and and Ham. The like-mindedness of the son to the father. That's certainly in view here. Canaan and Ham were two peas in a pod. They shared vices as much as they shared familial bonds. Canaan and the Canaanites that came from him, they retained the traits of their father, Ham. And Noah knew that. He observed it and he condemned it. He knew that his grandson was like his son. Keep in mind, these are not young boys. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are about 100 years old at this point, and their families are beginning to grow. So this is, these are established people, and it seems like his son had even developed some of his own character. The second reason, and perhaps even literarily the more important reason, is that Moses' use of Canaan... Just keep in mind his perspective that Moses is writing to the Israelite family, isn't here? So this this is literarily and culturally strategic. We have the comparison of Canaan, which takes us back, as I've already misspoken multiple times this morning, it takes you back to Cain. 
It reminds you of that curse, doesn't it? But it also, if you're an Israelite that Moses is speaking to, where else does it take you? Right to the land. It takes you right to the land that you've been promised and that be the generations of Ham are occupying and they're known as the Canaanites. So we have the comparison to Cain and to the present scenario of the Israelites as Moses is writing. That scenario is presently facing Israel as they look to conquer the occupants of the land that God has promised. And so this, when he says a servant of servants is Cain, Canaan to Shem, then the sons of Shem are encouraged, aren't they? The sons of Shem are emboldened. The sons of Shem are ready to go obey the voice of their God and to conquer the land of Canaan. So I think there's, there's a few different things that Moses is doing there. And that would be some things I would offer as a reason that, uh, that Noah turns and curses Canaan rather than Ham. Again, his curses of slavery, this is mentioned three times, once in Canaan's and then twice, one in Shem and one in Japheth. So each, uh, each imprecation contains the curse of Canaan, the servant. So, what is the invocation towards Shem and Japheth? Well, one of blessing, and it is interesting. The blessing to Shem begins, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And then even Japheth is directed toward Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth. So the only one not directed specifically at the sun is the second one toward Shem. It's unexpected wording. And so Noah's sort of breaking out in this positive prayer and he blesses the name of the Lord, the God of Shem. What's happening here is a fewfold. One, there is a play on words in both of the second two, well, all three, I suppose, now of the, of the son's name, Cain and, with Cain and the Canaanites. And then Shem, his name means name, means reputation. It means what you're known as. And so when God makes for himself a name through Shem, that's a Shem through Shem or a name through the name. So there's a, a bit of a play on words going on there. And that will take significance next week as well. When we look at the people who have united to do what? To make a name for themselves. They're trying to make an eternal Shem themselves. And Noah says, no, the relationship of Yahweh to Shem is essential. The two are entwined Yahweh himself makes a name through this man whose name means name. The idea then for Shem is that he would uh, attribute all of his blessings. He would ascribe his fortunes to the Lord because that's where his advantage came from. His advantage came from his righteous relationship with the Lord. And Japheth is another play on words. Uh, the very word enlarge is uh, Yaft, and then his name Yafeth. Uh, it's just, he's, I'm trying, I, I'm letting the word slip right now, but just two words that are essentially spelled the same thing, but spelled the same, but, but mean different things. Uh, and so Japheth is blessed with physical blessing. Is what it looks like. His tent is enlarged. So he has great tents, a great land, a great nation. And what is that? It's inside the tents of Shem. So he lives inside of this blessing that God has given. He is blessed physically in the inclusion of the spiritual blessing of Shem. 
Both sons receive this rich inheritance as virtuous sons who honor their father. And then in this epilogue, it's brief and is simply bringing us to a conclusion, not only of this uh, brief narrative, but is also of the, the entire Toledot of Noah. So he says, Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So let's look at a few of the implications here of these curses. If you remember a few weeks ago, perhaps a month ago or so, there was a sermon on the generations. uh, And Pastor Matt traced the line of Satan and the line of Eve through the two sons, Cain and Seth. And that genealogy, uh, which was in chapter 5, I believe, finished up in chapter 5, that picks up in 11.10. We move right from Noah, who was the last stated one in the previous generation, to now the first stated one being the genealogy of Shem. If you remember, here is just an image that was used from that sermon. We have the relationship of Cain to Seth. And there were 10 names used in both genealogies. It was this literary device that Moses was using to show how they were parallel and yet also to starkly contrast them as he gave some descriptions of, of some of the men along these lines. So now what we have in chapter 9 is that same thing continuing. If we've got Adam's line on the left with Seth to Noah, Then we have Noah's line on the right from Shem to Terah all the way down to the three sons being named at the end. So we'll briefly, we'll just read through this and consider in your mind this, what's just occurred. The blessing of the Lord in the tent of Shem. And here's where he picks up in 1110. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So that by itself is one of the 10 genealogies, the Toledotes that Moses used to structure Genesis. So the genealogy, the Toledot of Shem. Now, remember with me, the Cainite line was destroyed completely in the flood. One righteous man, his three sons, that was from the line of Shem. From the line of Seth. And so all of Cain's line is destroyed. 
Righteous Noah from the Sethite line disembarks from the ark. God has preserved the righteous line. Following the covenant of God, Moses immediately shifts our attention to the sons of Noah. And what we would anticipate is that it's all good now. We have just the line of Seth moving forward. But we would be foolish to think that the great dragon of old died in the flood with everybody else. And he has been active, this cunning serpent, even on the ark. Is he not interacting with these eight members Enticing, drawing, tempting. And he's already sunk his teeth into one of Noah's boys. That's the story of Ham. As we see that we have a new Cain line. A new line of Cain. A new line of the serpent. But God is not idle. He's not idle in the generations to come. His sovereign decrees are active. He has first choice. So he has chosen one of the three boys to pass on the good seed of Eve that's going to wage war against the dark. And this story reveals that Noah's sons for who they truly are. It demonstrates their character. It exposes their allegiances. And that passes on from generation to generation. So one of the big, some of the big differences between this generation and the generation to come is that uh, it, here, we're not paralleling the two anymore. We don't have hams in, uh, in parallel fashion. That happens in chapter 10 with all three of the boys, and we'll see how that plays out next week. This one is just zeroing in, narrowing focus, isolating his attention to the line. And as he does that, there's a few things that happen in this genealogy as well. He speeds up a little bit. You notice not in one of those names did he give any additional details of those men. It was irrelevant. He's ready to move from Noah down to Abram. That's the next relevant person. So he's doing that quickly. But there's another big distinction between the two generations as well. In the past one, if you remember, at the end of every individual, you have the emphasis, and that person died, and that person died, and that person died. Really trying to weigh heavy on our hearts the results of sin, the consequence of sin, that they did die. But here, that's left out. Perhaps partially to speed up the account, because we're trying to get to Abram as quickly as possible, but also... To emphasize hope. That we're moving toward life. That's what Moses is trying to get across here. That the end of this generation, which is the most significant name in a generation, right? The last name. That's, that means we've gotten to where we were supposed to be getting. Abram. That's a name that's filled with hope. That's a name. That's a man to whom God gives the first Covenant of grace. Remember not an arrangement of you do this, then I won't punish you. Not even, not even a covenant of mercy where he says you have done this, you'll continue to do evil, but I'll hang up my bow in the clouds. No, a covenant of grace where he promises to give, to bless, to, give, to cause abundance. And we'll look at that in two weeks from today. So the point of the story and the genealogy is God's preparation for giving the land to Abram. The heir of Shem's blessing. The oracle is not the cause, I don't think, of a specific downfall historically. 
but is this broad brush statement. If we were to look, we'll just conclude with this. If we were to look historically, when was this fulfilled? When do we look back and we see that's when Canaan was subject in a great and dramatic way to both Shem and Japheth? Because it's not just one, right? Shem would be the one that would be most naturally to be read because that's Israel. But also to Japheth. And as we'll learn next week, that's the uh, sort of the seafaring people, Gentiles. So when is Canaan subject to both of his brothers? Now, I think, again, if we're considering why Moses uses Canaan uh, and who he's writing to, that, that that would probably be one of the best times to look back to it, the conquest of Canaan. This would have been a wonderful morale-boosting material uh, for the children of Shem, who knew that the children of Canaan were given to be their servants. And there were also uh, attacks, not just from Israel at this time. There were attacks from the seafaring people to Egypt, to the Hittites, to others of, of Canaan's generation. So could it be that, that this conquest of Canaan was the time that it was supposed to be this grand uh, enslavement of, this, of the sons of Ham? It certainly could be, um, because Israel had received the blessing, but Canaan received the curse. But I can't help but remember that Israel failed to complete the conquest. They didn't do it as they were supposed to. They didn't drive out Canaan from the land. And the angel of the Lord came to them at the beginning of the book of Judges, where this is recorded. And he says, this is not what you were supposed to do. He says, I will no longer drive them out before you, but they shall be a snare to you. That's what he says about the sons of Ham in relationship to the sons of Shem. So while Noah's invocation has been answered in measure historically, the servant of servants line seems strong compared to what has taken place. And that leaves us no other option but to look forward. And I would encourage you with this truth this morning. That the ultimate descendant of Eve, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, David. He brings ultimate blessing to his family. And, lest any of us forget that physically we aren't, most of us probably, descendants of Shem. The Gentile idea is wrapped up in Japheth. Japheth is blessed in the tents of Shem. And I believe that Moses is giving this illusion that the Gentiles will be wrapped up in the blessings that are given to Shem. And there is a spiritual inheritance. In him, the Gentiles of Japheth are welcome to dwell in his tents. So we will see this ultimate future fulfillment in Christ. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. And I would encourage you this morning with that truth, that God is a God of hope, and he is a God of blessing, and he is a God who ultimately is to be blessed eternally, and we will be in him as well. Let's close with a word of prayer.